Good afternoon. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to the show. This afternoon, we're going to discuss the elephant in the room that just won't go away, the tar sands, dirty oil, and the future of a continent. Andrew Nikifork joins us. Who the hell can run their company, their community, their home on a product that is as volatile now as oil as a result of this phenomenon of, of running out of the cheap stuff? A lot of enterprises like that Deutsche Bank and other agencies are beginning to think that what's going to happen over the next 10 years is that consumers, industry, communities are going to respond to the price volatility by looking for ways to get off oil. Not because they don't like oil, not because it's not convenient anymore, but not but because they can't hack the price volatility. And so they'll be looking for disruptive technologies like electronic cars, like better public transport, like you know all sorts of things to get off fossil fuels. That could have a phenomenal impact on the demand for vitamin from Canada. Basically, our position in Copenhagen is is that we don't give a shit about you guys. Mm. We We don't care about emerging nations. We don't care about the poor in this world. All we care about is feeding our own extravagant fat and lazy oil based culture. So we're not occupying any moral high ground here at all. We're not thinking about issues of of justice, issues of equity. We're not thinking about the important moral issues that we should be thinking about. This afternoon, it's The Tar Sands, Dirty Oil and the Future of a Continent by Andrew Nikifort. Right now on Brent Holland. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Folks, we're speaking with Andrew Nikifork, his book, Tar Sands, Dirty Oil and the Future of a Continent. And perhaps it's apropos, he is our guest this week, as last week the Copenhagen conference closed. And let's jump into that right away, Andrew. What's your opinion of what took place there? Well, I mean, there were a number of things that took place. Number one, I I would say I'm not surprised by the outcome. Uh, I don't think there was a good chance of getting an agreement to begin with, largely because the United States is still grappling about what to do. That's number one, I think. Number two is certainly Canada was humiliated in Copenhagen, and it became very clear to the rest of the world that Canada now has more in common with Saudi Arabia, a country that has tried to obstruct climate change negotiations for nearly a decade than it does with other countries around the world at this point in time. So it became obvious to everyone, except perhaps Canadians, that, you know, we're now a petrostate and we will obstruct the negotiations that might threaten the sale of petroleum products 
or at least diminish them or, or lower demand for them. And it was very obvious that we came with no plan. We came as an obstructionist country, even though we are one of the world's top 10 emitters of CO2. We came not to be leaders, not to be brokers. We were there like Saudi Arabia on the sidelines, obstructing things. You know, it's interesting. Canada gave one speech at Copenhagen. It lasted three and a half minutes. It was 12 paragraphs long, and essentially nothing was said. Saudi Arabia gave a speech that was six and a half minutes long, so twice as long as Canada's speech, you know, with virtually the same sort of, oh, innocuous political cliches. That's what we did in Copenhagen. Okay. It's not a good legacy for the country or for, or for Canadians. We're going to be in trouble as a result of all this. Two questions that I wanted to ask you. Can you give us an example of how we obstructed? And when you say we're going to be in trouble, exactly what does that mean? Okay, well, in, in terms of obstruction, I mean, we have obstructed negotiations in any number of ways. Number one, we, we're not interested in, in leading the discussion. We're not interested in making commitments that we can uphold. And we're doing our best to kind of keep other countries from coming together and and uniting around certain principles. You know, the former chief science advisor for England and George Monbiot for The Guardian, Japanese, the ambassador for the United Nations, have all described Canada as, as obstructionist. You know, Canada's role at this point in time, because of the rapid development of the tar sands and because we have now become this global exporter of oil, really, it's, there's nothing global about it. It's all going to the United States. But, mm -hmm. So we've become this major exporter of oil to the U.S. We will do anything we can to defend the exploitation of that resource and the wealth it will generate either for the federal government or the government of Alberta. That's where the obstruction begins. The very fact that our prime minister is, is a climate change skeptic, he's the son of an imperial oil executive. You know, when Obama invited 12 leaders to discuss where can we go with this thing, it's uh, noteworthy that Harper wasn't even part of the invitation. Because everyone knows that Canada is not going to go into negotiations to further them, advance them, to try to come up with creative solutions here. That's not Canada's role anymore. You mentioned the size of our resource. How big is it? I know a lot of people are unaware that we're the number one provider of oil to the United States. How big is our resource? Well, it's huge. It doesn't mean it can all be exploited, but it is, technically speaking, we have the world's second largest reserves of hydrocarbons after Saudi Arabia which also helps explain why our political position on climate change is not much different than that of Saudi Arabia's, right? I mean, Saudi Arabia is interested in selling oil. Uh, Canada is now really interested in selling bitumen and heavy oil, really the dirtiest of hydrocarbons. So we're sitting on this massive resource that's three deposits in northern Alberta, a bit in Saskatchewan. Really, what is interesting about this, and, and again, Canadians aren't really aware of this, is that, look, this is a really dirty third-rate hydrocarbon. It was at one point light oil. That was 300 million years ago. It has been badly biodegraded by bacteria. It's now this thick, tarry, asphalt-like stuff, which is why I call it the tar sands, because it, it behaves, smells, and, and looks more like tar than, than it does oil. And it requires a phenomenal amount of upgrading. So you've got to take all these carbon atoms and out, and you've got to put hydrogen atoms in to enrich it so that you've got a product called synthetic crude, and then synthetic crude needs all kinds of complex refining before you get something called oil, something that you can actually put out there in the marketplace. And synthetic crude, is, it, it is rich in acids and heavy metals. It's got eight times more sulfur than light oil. So technically speaking, I mean, the product that Canada is now exporting to the United States is truly unconventional. 
It is an extremely difficult resource to produce. Even companies like Statoil and Total describe the resource as difficult, extreme, ugly. And in many ways, what we are doing is almost equivalent to um, taking Canada's existing highway network, uh, ripping it up, putting it through an upgrader, reprocessing it, and trying to squeeze the oil out of it. That's essentially what this resource is about in energy terms, which is why the carbon emissions are so phenomenal. And also in this process, there is another natural commodity that is prevalent in Canada, and that's water. And I'd like to talk about the Athabasca River and what it's done to the depletion of water, fresh water. Tar sands production uses water in any number of ways, and the impacts are quite astonishing. I guess let's just begin with consumption. You need a lot of water to make bitumen, and essentially you need 12 barrels of water to produce one barrel of bitumen. What all that water is being used for is essentially to wash. Just imagine a kind of a washing machine, a huge industrial washing machine, and you throw in a, a caustic soda and hot water, and it, it mixes with the bitumen. The sand and the clay drop to the bottom, and bitumen froth rises to the top, and you scoop that off, and then you get your barrel of bitumen. Of that 12 barrels of water that you are using, about eight of them you can recycle and use again. But four are lost in the industrial process and become wastewater. And they go to these, these huge tailings ponds, which now cover about 140 square kilometers of forest floor on either side of the Athabasca River. And that water is, you know, is so the clay has bound to the water so tightly and so significantly that it has to settle over time and it gets contaminated with, uh, oh, arsenic and cyanide and naphthenic acids and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and, you know, fish killers and cancer makers and, and so we've got this incredible waste stream. That's a major issue. But first comes the consumption. So we're 12 barrels of water per produced barrel of bitumen, with three to four barrels being consumed in the process or ending up as wastewater. Mm -hmm. So what does that amount to? And on a yearly basis, every year, we're using enough water to produce bitumen to sustain a, two cities the size of Calgary. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com Every time we export a barrel of bitumen to the United States, there's kind of three barrels of virtual water embedded in that product. We've got these, really, the world's largest collection of toxic lakes along the Athabasca River, and there's all of these dikes and these ponds where we're putting this wastewater are unlined. And they're really serious issues about how much they're leaking either into mm -hmm. groundwater or into the Athabasca River. And that's just one, one of what, you know, one part of the water picture. There's, you know, there's another form of production for bitumen, and that's called in situ or steam-assisted gravity drainage, or, or what I simply call the steam plant production, where you're taking three to four barrels of water, you're converting it to steam, you're using natural gas to do that, and then you take that steam and you're injecting it deep into the ground. So these are the, the really deep deposits of bitumen. Now you're melting that bitumen like a block of wax, and then you're collecting at the bitumen with pipes underneath and then bringing it back up to surface. Now, there are all kinds of groundwater issues related to that form of production. Again, we're talking about phenomenal amounts of water, some of it fresh, some of it saline water, without very good baseline data in terms of what is all this bitumen production and with steam plants going to do to existing groundwater? Do we have enough groundwater to sustain this form of production? And then what happens once we produce the bitumen? We're, you know, we're essentially 
creating this cavity in the ground over time will that fill with surface water or will that fill with groundwater mm-hmm. and uh and how is that going to affect the whole hydrology of the region and the steam plant production will take place essentially over an area the size of florida that's a remarkable uh hydrological footprint to have in a part of northern canada that protects a sixth of Canada's fresh water supply, and that is essentially all part of the world's third largest watershed, which is the Mackenzie River Basin. Is there any way to exploit this resource, the tar sands, without being so caustic to the environment? <laughs> I mean, that's a million-dollar question. Sure. Uh, it's a messy resource. Right now it takes a huge amount of carbon, huge amount of, of water, huge amount of, of energy to produce. The essential problem that we have is that we've tried to produce too much too quickly with the result that we cannot solve in a timely fashion some of the enormous environmental liabilities and problems that we've created. I mean, the best solution, and it's one that both the federal government and the provincial government have rejected, is simply slowing down. And actually, that economically, that would be the, the best solution for the country as well because this rapid production of the tar sands has given us a petrodollar. It has diminished the manufacturing sectors in Ontario and Quebec. It has given us this horrible international reputation, and we haven't been able to keep up with the environmental issues that we've created there. So slowing down is really the best approach to most of the environmental issues that we have up there. And then there's a whole bunch that we really have to sit down and tackle single-handedly. I mean, number one, we should not be building any more tailings ponds We should be working as quickly as possible to treat and process that water in the pond and to decommission those ponds. They are an enormous liability uh, for the Athabasca Mm -hmm. River and for 40,000 people living downstream. To answer your question, you know, is is, is there a sustainable way to produce bitumen out of the tar sands? And I'd have to say no. None of this is sustainable. This resource is so dirty, so difficult, so ugly, so capital-intensive that what it is telling us is that, you know what, Canada, you cannot run on this resource for long. The United States cannot run on this resource for long. We need a 30-year plan, and if we're still running on this stuff within 30 years, then we will have failed as nations, both politically, economically, and and environmentally. Does the revenue drive the country right now? Absolutely. I mean, this is what it's all about. It's all about the money. The money, of course. Uh, Right. It really is. I mean, uh, uh, but what most Canadians don't appreciate is that the federal government makes the most amount of money from the tar sands. They make it in the form of corporate taxes. Mm -hmm. They make somewhere between, you know, four to five billion dollars a year. And that goes into general revenue. Most oil-producing nations have sovereign funds where they stick the majority of their oil wealth and they save that for future generations. And that stabilizes their currency and that allows other sectors of the economy to continue without the burden of, of an oil dollar. We haven't done that. And the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and the International Monetary Fund have both criticized Canada for not having any fiscal accountability with oil wealth. So... Ottawa is the number one benefactor, and Ottawa has no fiscal accountability with that wealth, and it now simply uses it to lower taxes to make Canadians feel comfortable about governments they shouldn't be feeling comfortable about. Now, Alberta has done exactly the same sort of thing. It's making less money from the oil sands than the federal government. It earns its income from land leases and from royalties, you know, a share of the profit, and we have among the lowest royalties in the world, 
it, as a result, Alberta is, you know, is not getting its fair share, is getting much less than Ottawa. And, you know, we're running a major deficit this year in the province of Alberta, somewhere between six and eight billion dollars because of the poor way that we have managed our oil wealth. So at this point in time, it really is truly all about the money. Oil revenue is cheap and easy revenue for governments. And here's the conundrum that any major oil-producing country gets into very quickly. Because so much money is coming in, and because it's cheap and easy money, and because governments don't have to work hard for it, that money, the temptation over time then is for the governments then to run on that revenue. And if they run on that revenue, they're not running on taxes, they'll lower taxes. And as a result, over time, they come to represent the resource. You know, there's no uh, representation without taxation. This is the stunning thing that happened in Copenhagen, <laughs> was that, you know, Jim Prentice wasn't there to represent Canada. He was there really to represent the tar sands. We sent our environment minister from Alberta, who really sounds like an economic development minister, and he wasn't there to represent any intelligent debate about climate change or emissions or energy use. He was there basically to defend the tar sands as well. You know, so really we have greatly diminished the character of Canadian government by not having good plans to deal with, with oil wealth, how we collect that wealth, how much we save, and who's benefiting from it, with the result that we have governments increasingly dependent on it and who go out of the way to represent the resource. That is going to be a really perilous position for Canada. Folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Andrew Fork and his book, Tar Sands, Dirty Oil and the Future of a Continent. Now, it's an important book, folks. It's the non-sexy side of the tar sands and it is very revealing in his in-depth research with it you're going to learn stuff that you may not have been aware of and how bad this is for the environment and how unregulated it is you can pick the book up at any chapters indigo right across the country and once again it's called tar sands the author's andrew nicky fork an easy way to get it is just go to the www.brentholland.show Dot com website. There you're going to see the book cover for it. Just click on the book cover. That'll take you to Chapters Indigo. You can order it online, probably be in your home within 24, 48 hours. I want to go back to Copenhagen. Okay. Was there any movement afoot to bring Canada into all things OPEC? That's a good question, and I can't answer that. Uh, I know Alberta is already an observer um, mm. at OPEC. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Alberta is already moving in that whole world. I mean, what I can say is that Canada is behaving and talking more and more like an oil-producing nation and sounding more and more like countries in the Middle East whose fundamental position on climate change is that, uh, you know, we can't be bothered because it's uh, going to have an impact on oil prices and, uh, and oil demand. I don't think that's where the Canadian people want Canada to be, and I don't think it's where the United States wants us to be either. As we are the leading exporter of oil to the United States, their main supplier, what kind of danger does that put us in is if we decide to nationalize oil or if we turn the tap off? Well, I think it's the danger is more the, uh, the, the other way with the United States. All right, So we have a single market at this point in time. Uh, we now account for 20% of the oil imports to the United States come from Canada. Of that 20%, about 13% is coming directly from the tar sands. Most of the synthetic crude and bitumen 
going to the United States is all going to the U.S. Midwest. So it's going to Barack Obama country. And some of it's going to the western states like Utah and Colorado. And a very small fraction is going to Washington state. Now, the plan is, of course, and we're producing 1.3 million barrels a day from the tar sands. So Mm -hmm. we want to increase production up to 3 million barrels a day and to expand the network in in the U.S. that's dependent on this product. But here are some of the things that, as an Albertan, really concern me. Number one, the United States at some point is going to get serious about climate change. And really, climate change, I think environmental groups have kind of got it wrong. Climate change is critically important. We have to act on it. But in order to explain it to ordinary people, I think sometimes you really have to talk about it in terms of energy use. Really, everything about climate change is about energy, how we use energy, and the emissions from energy. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com And uh, I think the United States is going to get really serious about energy, what kind of energy it uses, and it's certainly got a lot of people in the administration who want to move very quickly towards renewables and who want to cut dependence on oil, period. I mean, they're sick and tired of bloody oil from the Middle East, and they're certainly aware that switching to dirty oil in Canada comes with its own liabilities, the carbon intensity, the capital intensity. I mean, this is the world's most expensive oil, and they understand that that's not sustainable either. So really what the United States has to do is move very quickly to reduce its consumption of fossil fuels as a source of transportation fuel, something by 80% over the next decade. And the big question is, you know, are Americans up to that challenge? Mm. So if they are, then that's going to really limit the development of the tar sands. If the Americans put a price on carbon, that's going to limit the tar sands. If the U.S. military begins to influence American public policy on climate change and energy, that will have a dramatic impact on the tar sands because the U.S. military has come out of Iraq with a very green mentality. They learned firsthand how vulnerable they are in the field. You know, an Abrams Mm -hmm. tank has to be resupplied with, Mm -hmm. with diesel fuel every two hours. If your supply lines are under constant attack, as they were in Iraq, improvised explosive devices, insurgents, and so on, I mean, the U.S. military quickly realized, okay, this their dependence on petroleum was becoming a huge security issue just for the military itself. So they've come back to the United States thinking, whoa, this is a security issue for the entire country. And they've also come back, well, this is more done in, in conjunction at the same time, but there are any number of admirals and, and colonels and top people in the Navy, the Army, and the Marines who are also extremely concerned about climate change as also the security risk posed by climate change. So there's this very strong green movement in the U.S. military that wants to push the United States to getting off oil, period, as well. So, you know, carbon pricing, the Obama administration gets serious about climate change and renewables, plus the U.S. military, you've got some signals there that maybe our rapid development of the tar sands is not going to pan out the way we think. The last thing here really comes down to this whole phenomenon of peak oil, all right? And that's just simply the, the notion that the world is running out of light oil and the cheap and easy stuff to get, and now we're running on this heavy, goopy, carbon-intensive, capital-intensive, dirty oil, with the result that we're going to have all kinds of price volatility, which we've already seen. You know, prices go up to 140 bucks, and then they're down to 30 bucks, and then they're up to, you know, 70 and 80 bucks, and we know we're going to have another price spike. Who the hell can run their company, their community, their home on a product 
that is as volatile now as oil as a result of this phenomenon of, of running out of the cheap stuff. A lot of enterprises like the Deutsche Bank and other agencies are beginning to think that what's going to happen over the next 10 years is that consumers, industry, communities are going to respond to the price volatility by looking for ways to get off oil. Not because they don't like oil, not because it's not convenient anymore, but, not, but because they can't hack the price volatility. And so they'll be looking for disruptive technologies like electronic cars, like better public transport, like you know all sorts of things to get off fossil fuels. That could have a phenomenal impact on the demand for bitumen from Canada. So this is why the country needs a national strategy. This is why the the country needs to think, uh, really have needs, first of all, to have a a national debate about the the pace and scale of the tar sands. What do we hope to achieve by exploiting this resource? Who's going to benefit? Are we going to save the money for future generations? And and, um, what's going to happen if we do not... Uh, you know, develop uh, our renewables and, uh, and, and, and green up um, while at the same time we're exploiting this resource. Well, if we don't, then we put all of our economic eggs in one basket. We're almost entirely dependent then on, on hydrocarbons and the export of hydrocarbons. And, okay, so what happens the next time the world crashes or the price of oil crashes? Well, the Canadian economy is going to crash. So this is a very high-risk strategy that the country has now embarked on as a consequence of having no national energy strategy and as a consequence of having no national dialogue about this project. And this project affects every part of the country. It does indeed. Folks, if you're just joining us, we're talking about the tar sands, of course, and the author of the book, Tar Sands, Andrew Nicky Fork. You can pick it up at Chapters Indigo right across the country or www.brenthollandshow.com. Just click on the book cover to take it Chapters Indigo. I would like to read a quote from the book, and I want to stay on consumption for a second, then I want to talk about the emerging nations. Now, the quote is, the average Albertan, and the reason why I want to read this quote, folks, is because I think it's indicative of most of us in North America. The average Albertan burns 60 barrels due to an above-average use of fossil fuel toys, such as ATVs, trucks, and SUVs. Now, listen to this. The average person in India uses half a barrel annually. So there's that consumption. Know, that's, that's unbelievable. Those are sobering figures. And what I would add in there, too, look, the average Canadian is using about 25 barrels a year. Okay, the average Albertan is using up to 60 barrels a year. And part of that is a, a function of our really promiscuous use of fossil fuels here in this mm-hmm. province. But it's also a function of the energy intensity of oil production in the province. I mean, we're producing all this energy. It takes an enormous amount of energy to produce energy. That's why our footprint is is at the 60 barrels a year. But when you compare that to a place like India, you know, half Mm -hmm. a barrel, a barrel, compare it to China, you know, six barrels a year, you have to ask, well, what makes Albertans or what gives Alberta the right to consume six times more fossil fuels or 10 times more fossil fuels than the average guy in China? And so there are huge issues here about equity. But you're right. I mean, Brent, really, the fundamental issue is that of demand. No political leader in Canada wants to talk about demand, wants to talk about the fact that, you know what, we have so many energy slaves at our disposal in terms of barrels that we use a year, and nobody wants to talk about the fact that maybe our households are getting fat, lazy, and negligent 
by being so dependent on these energy slaves, and that maybe we need to scale down, and maybe and the best way to do that, of course, is with a carbon tax. Mm. I want to come back to that. Well, let's go into the carbon tax right now. But I do want to come back to a statement that was made in Copenhagen about the emerging nations. But let's go into the carbon tax. How do you see that benefiting the climate, Canada, everything as a whole? Well, first of all, number one, it makes everyone automatically, the carbon tax tells every Canadian, look, you're you're all part of this problem. You've all got to be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's just not a problem for oil companies. It's a problem for oil consumers. And for our oil addicts, actually, is probably a better word to, to describe it, because we essentially are now behaving like addicts. Uh, we don't want to discuss demand. We just want to make sure our, you know, our oil company or crack cocaine dealer is out there on the street and selling us the jazz. You know, we get a little upset when the price goes up, but we're still out there with our dollars and still buying it. So we're behaving like addicts, and we need something to remind us that, you know what, we're not here on this planet to behave like addicts. We're here to behave like human beings, and there are extreme costs that are come from this addiction in terms of to, to changing the climate and stealing away security from future generations and from our children. So the carbon tax would, you know, applies to all of us, not just the oil and gas industry. The carbon tax also has the advantage, too, that you, you've got to ask yourself, okay, so who's this going to hit? Well, it's going to hit who uses the most fossil fuels. Well, this the most rich use the most fossil fuels. They're the folks with all the toys. They're the folks that go shopping in Paris and Mexico City or Miami or whatever and are taking flights all over the place. So, yeah, they need to pay more. They need to be reminded that their lifestyles are unsustainable and extravagant and foolish. So they would be paying their fair share. That's the other thing I like about the carbon tax. And then it would be progressive over time. So over time, you know, it goes up a little bit every year. And it reminds us that, yeah, we are running out of fossil fuels. We need to begin the transition. And we need to get off this dirty stuff. We can't be afford to go from light oil to heavy oil and pretend the business as usual. So the carbon tax is probably the best way for us to go. The money could go into a dedicated energy transformation fund in Canada. All of it, as a matter of fact, it could be, should be run by an independent agency. Any province could apply to that agency and say, look, we've got a plan to remove 10 million tons of CO2 from our economy by improving public transit, by uh, helping communities put up windmills, by helping communities with geothermal projects, mm-hmm. by helping communities with solar projects, you know, all that sort of stuff, and make sure the, the emission reductions are then well audited. That's where we really need to go. That's the kind of creative thinking we need. The other thing I like about the uh, carbon tax is that it is fundamentally simple, just, and economic. Most economists like it. And unlike cap and trade, where you have to create this huge bureaucracy to figure out, okay, well, we're going to cap levels at this level, and then you're going to trade here to make it uh, look as though you've got you've met your level. Yeah, you create a huge bureaucracy, much like the international traders trading in toxic derivatives, uh, you know, in, in banks. We don't need that stuff. That is just the wrong way to go. It's too complex, and it doesn't deal with the problem. It tries to disguise the problem, and it allows people to profit off the problem without solving it. A carbon tax really starts solving the problem because all of us begin to think more about what we are consuming, how are we consuming it. In the end, it will make us smarter, more efficient consumers. That's where I really think Canada needs to go. We need to have an adult Mm -hmm. debate about that. We need to discuss it for sure. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, 
please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com I want to go back to the emerging nations and something that actually came out of Copenhagen that I thought was extremely profound and perhaps very revealing about the emerging nations. They were saying that here we are just starting to get our economies going. We're starting to industrialize and in the same way that the West industrialized. But all of a sudden now you're telling us we can't do it with oil and there's no alternative that we can afford right now. And as a Canadian, and I know most Canadians feel this way, we want to do right by the emerging nations. We want to help out wherever we can. And in fact, we do do that through our taxes and giving money, et cetera, et cetera, for development. What do you say to them at this point? Well, we're we're not saying anything to them. Basically, our position in Copenhagen is, is that we don't give a shit about you guys. We don't, we don't care about emerging nations. We don't care about the poor in this world. All we care about is feeding our own extravagant, fat, and lazy oil-based culture. So we're not occupying any moral high ground here at all. We're not thinking about issues of, of, of justice, issues of equity. We're not thinking about the important moral issues that we should be thinking about. And what we really should be doing, we should be thinking of really creative and innovative ways to help emerging nations skip the whole oil-based industrialization phase and move to more community-based forms of, of green and, and energy, uh, green energy production. But Canada's not there. We're, we're not leaders in renewables. Brazil, you know, invested something like, uh, in, increased its investments in renewables by 38% last year. Canada increased its investments in renewables by 4%. Oh. So Brazil is in a better position to help emerging nations now with renewable uh, technologies and innovation than Canada is, because Canada is entrenched in the tar sands. It's all about hydrocarbons. And so we, we have literally discouraged any of that kind of development in our own country. So how the hell can we export that kind of knowledge elsewhere? Or how can we encourage other emerging countries to, to go that route when we're just uh, getting fatter and lazier by the moment, sucking on this vitamin coming out of northern Alberta. Again, this is a, you know, another political liability for us on the international stage to not be leaders, to act like Saudi princes. That's certainly not what the rest of the world is, expects from Canada. Absolutely not. They expect leadership, as we've provided in so many other areas before. I would be amiss if we did not discuss Dead Duck Lake and the health issues surrounding the tar sands. This was quite alarming when I read it in the book. By the way, folks, we're speaking today with Andrew Nicky Fork, and the book is called Tar Sands. It can be gotten at any chapters indigo right across the country. It is an important book. It is extremely important, as I call it, the non-sexy side of the tar sands. It's quite revealing. It's quite profound. He's done great research. Uh, one of the quotes that I just read from the book was astounding, the one how Albertans use so much more in terms of energy, fossil fuels, than, for example, India. The ratio is almost 10 to 1. It's explosive. It's a great book, and I urge you all to go and get it. Now, I was wanted to talk about health because has there been an increase in cancers in the area? There has been. Um, oh, and, and the big... Yeah, there's a, there's a big issue uh, downstream of the tar sands. 
And that's in the community of Fort Chip, one of the, the oldest settlements in Alberta. It was at one time the center of the fur trade for the country. And it's a community of 1,000 Dene and Cree, and it's about 300 kilometers downstream from the tar sands. There was a cancer report that came out in 2009 that basically said, you know what, there are some issues here. This community has a 30% higher rate of cancers than one would normally expect to find in an Aboriginal community. And moreover, there are some very rare cancers here, in, uh, cancers of lymph- lymphatic cancers and blood cancers and bile duct cancers. In addition, that many of the people in Fort Chip who have died of cancer had moved to Fort McMurray, were working in the tar sands, Mm -hmm. and that those folks died of entirely different cancers than the people in Fort Chip. So the people working in the mines, living in Fort McMurray, were dying of testes cancers, brain cancer, and, and, and other cancers, and very young. So this study has raised a, a lot of questions. The guy at the center of all this is Dr. John O'Connor, who used to be the physician for the community of Fort Chip. He raised questions about the number of rare cancers and, and rare autoimmune disorders he saw in the community several years ago, which resulted in this 2009 cancer board study. At this point in time, we know that the river is increasingly uh, polluted. We know that things like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are indeed getting into the river. A lot of it is coming from air emissions, from upgraders and and plants, and that this particulates and chemicals are landing on the snow, and in the spring they melt, and then you get these huge chemical pulses in in the Athabasca River. And we need more studies to really determine the full scale of what's getting into the river, what's going downstream, and uh, we need to ask the hard question, well, is this connected to the rare cancers we're now seeing in the community of Fort Chip. And so far, you know, both the federal government and the Alberta Health have fought calls and demands for comprehensive health studies that would answer those questions. That's explosive. Why would they do that? Well, you know, that's a really good question. I think part of it is you're seeing the, just the general reaction of a resource state. Okay, well, okay, well, this is where we make our money. This is where we make our revenue. Let's not mess up the picture here by... Uh, commissioning studies that might indicate that we actually have an emerging public health problem. Okay, so that's part of the thinking. The other part of the thinking, I think, is, is that, uh, let's say, on, on behalf of Health Canada, is that they were embarrassed by Dr. John O'Connor's calls for a proper health study and by the fact that he was diagnosing and finding problems that Health Canada has systematically denied. I mean, they have been asked to do proper studies for more than a decade by various Aboriginal groups up there. And both Alberta Health and Health Canada have ignored recommendations by the Energy Resources Conservation Board and by a major uh, river study and and other groups to do these studies. So they've they've been caught off guard, all right? So this is an issue about saving face. And if if the activity of other people and performance of other, other people has made you look negligent and incompetent, then your reaction is, not to get on board and do the proper studies, but it is to tack the people right. that have re- reminded you that, you know what, you're not really doing your job. Yeah, so Health Canada it. hasn't been doing its job. Alberta Health hasn't been doing its job up there. We've got a problem, and we've made the problem worse by not responding in a rational way, which is simply, by God, let's get on here and let's do the proper studies. There's lots of pollution in that river. Not all of it's coming from the tar sands. Some of it comes from pulp mills. Some of it comes from agricultural runoff. Some of it comes from uh, 
uh, municipal uh, effluent, and some of it is coming from abandoned uranium mines on Lake Athabasca. Let's get a handle on this issue. You shouldn't be building the world's largest energy project unless you do the proper medical, public health, and community studies at the same time to make sure that you are not exposing, number one, industry or the local communities to uh, liabilities that they shouldn't be exposed to. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened at Dead Duck Lake? (laughs) Dead Duck Lake. Well, we talked about these massive tailing lakes and ponds or that are on both sides of the Athabasca River. There's more than 12 of them now. They cover 140 square kilometers, and this is toxic waste, okay? It's bitumen, it's sand, it's clay, it's cyanide, arsenic, uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, and you name it. I mean, one of the ponds that Syncrude built is the world's second largest dam in construction material volume after the Three Gorges Dam in China. Okay, so that gives you an idea of of how big these things are. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com So they've got all this toxic stuff. The water is usually the last bunch of water to freeze in the fall, and the first to open up in the spring because of all this toxic stuff in it. These ponds are also leaching enormous amounts of CO2 and, and methane, primarily methane, into the air as all the hydrocarbons decompose. So one of the ponds, uh, one of Syncrude's ponds, is Mildred Lake, emits enough methane every day as 500,000 cows. So you've got all this, this cred coming off these ponds. You've got this thick, oily, bitumen film on top of them, and they're all located along the Athabasca River, you know, and it happens to be part of one of the most major migratory flight routes in North America. The Athabasca Delta is an incredibly rich place, and and migratory birds have been going there for tens and tens of thousands of years. It's a major staging area. So the birds are flying up uh, north in the spring, or they're flying south in the fall, and, you know, what do they see below them? Or they see these, you know, 12 toxic lakes. To, to the bird, they look like a lake. It looks like an open body of water. They land, they get coated in bitumen, they sink to the bottom. And this happens every year. So every year, about seven to 8,000 birds are killed in these ponds. I mean, moose, beaver, deer also get stuck in the ponds and die. And so two years ago, Syncrude failed to put out its propane cannons to scare away these birds, which is... Not a terribly effective means uh, of scaring away the birds anyway. They, they get used to the, to the sound, habituated to the popping of the propane cannons. But anyway, during a winter storm or a late spring storm, they just forgot to put them out or didn't put them out, or we don't really know all the details yet. And um, a massive amount of birds landed on the pond and got coated in oil, sunk, and died. And originally, Syncrude said, well, you know, you know 500 birds have landed and, and died. And then, then they said, no, well, you know, we didn't give you the right number. It was actually 1,600 birds that died. You know, it, it's against the law to kill migratory birds in Canada mm-hmm. under the Fed, Federal Act. So it should have been a very simple, cut-and-dried process. The federal government says, okay, you shouldn't be killing birds, man. Uh, here's your fine. Uh, let's uh, improve your practices here, and let's get on with life. And, uh, nope, it took more than a year and a half for anyone to lay charges. It's been a ponderous process. Uh, Syncrude is now fighting those charges in court and saying they're not guilty. Um, and uh, you'd almost think, 
you know, that their Synchro's lawyers are working for Greenpeace. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just another example of the kind of neglect and poor performance uh, and poor environmental performance we've, we've seen systematically in the tar sands. You know, and, and what's incredible about this story, Brent, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, in terms of environmental issues, you know, the killing of birds in the tailings pond is probably at the bottom of a list of ten. You know, it, it, it's, not, it's not the big environmental issue. It's the leaking tailings ponds. That's right. It's the acidic emissions going into Saskatchewan. It's the abusive use of groundwater. It's the abusive use of water from the Athabasca River. It's the lack of, 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 of speedy reclamation in the tar sands. It's the, it's the carbon emissions. It's the uh, carbon emissions. It's the incredible natural gas intensity of the resource. I mean, 20% of the country's natural gas is being used there. I mean, though, to me, those are the big environmental issues, as, as well as the public health issue in Fort Chip. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that really needs to be grabbing the national headlines. Instead, it was, it was the duck issue. Let's talk about apathy. What is going on with our population? <laughs> What's going well, on? Well, it's I, not so much... I, it, I know you work closely with David Suzuki's foundation. For example, were they even asked to participate alongside the Canadian government in Copenhagen or even on an uh, advisory type of um, position? Well... I can't say because I did, Brent, I don't, I don't work very closely with the David Suzuki Foundation. They, they merely were very supportive of the book and, oh, and put see. their print on, on the, on the book. Okay. And I don't know what the Suzuki Foundation was doing in Copenhagen. But if we come back to your question about apathy, yeah. I, can, I can talk a bit about that. You know, uh, there are a number of issues here. I'm, I mean, only two out of ten Canadians are even aware that Canada is now the number one supplier of oil to the United States. Andrew, I have a lot of American clients because for a living I compose music for television and film, and they are right. unaware of it, too. They all think it's Saudi Arabia. Oh, yeah, Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Iran. Yes, and, um, and And so, but, yeah, and so, I mean, I mean the Americans don't, don't know at all, and there's a very low level of, of awareness here in Canada. So that's the, that's the first big issue. The second issue is that, you know, this, this project is taking place in a fairly remote part of northern Alberta. Most Canadians have never been there and know very little about it other than what they've seen on TV. It's interesting that different parts of the country have a totally different perception of the resource. Probably the most informed group of people in the country about the tar sands are people from Atlantic Canada. Almost, you know, everyone from Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, PEI, New Brunswick, they have a relative, a spouse, a brother, or a sister, or someone who has worked in Fort Mac, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you can go to, uh, you know, Cape Breton Island, you find entire communities where, you know, a third of the men are either working in the tar sands or in the process of coming back, or it's just absolutely remarkable. And you can talk to these guys and these gals, and they, I mean, they, they can tell you all about the social life in Fort McMurray and what it's like to live in a boom town and the gold digging and the cost of housing and, you know, the, the cost of prostitutes, the cost of drugs, the social issues. The, they can tell you all about it because they know all about it. Yet, you know, they're not aware of all of the national implications of the project. Now, I guess the other thing here, when you talk about apathy, I think it really comes down to the fact that, you know, what country would have the world's largest energy project, the world's largest engineering project, the world's largest capital project, 
take place in their backyard, and they would just sort of sit back and, uh, and not report on it. I mean, the CBC doesn't have a National Bureau in Fort McMurray. It should. The Globe and Mail doesn't have a National Bureau in Fort McMurray. It should. CTV doesn't have a bureau there. It should. The National Post doesn't have a, a bureau there, but it should. When something this significant is taking place in your country, is changing your political character, changing your economic character, and I'm actually much more concerned about this project's impact on our politics and our culture and our economics than I am now about the environmental issues. When all of these things happen and the media doesn't show up to cover it on a regular basis, then you begin to understand why Canadians don't know some of the things they should know. I mean, they don't understand that we are rapidly becoming a petro-state. They don't understand that, that you know, we, we, we used to be the world's seventh largest exporter of oil, and now we're on our way to fifth or fourth largest mm-hmm. exporter of oil. They don't understand how oil wealth changes the political character of a place. They don't understand that most oil exporting countries, you know, don't give a, a crap about climate change because... That's going to limit and reduce their revenue over time, and it's going to reduce oil consumption over time, and they don't want to have any part of that. And they don't understand, then, that Canada is now part of this other club that we have, in in the last 10 years, suddenly become a different country. We're not the country that Canadians think we are anymore. You mentioned politics, Andrew. Yeah. Is there blatant corruption going on right out in the open? It's not so much corruption as it is uh, this, this, and this is a well-documented phenomenon, by the way. I mean, political mm-hmm. scientists have asked for years, why is it that, you know, the politics in the Middle East is so screwed up? Why, mm-hmm. what, why do we not see any democracies in oil-producing countries in the Middle East? And, you know, and why is it that only, it's only Lebanon and Israel that are that ostensible democracies? Well, they have no oil. And then they started to, okay, so how does oil affect a country's political development over time. And so you have uh, interesting guys like Michael Ross at the University of California and Eric uh, Wibble at the University of Oregon, who've then looked into this and they said, okay, well, well, what happens? And it all comes down again to the money and how the money then becomes the, 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 this becomes the critical obsession of the government and they, they can use this money to manipulate uh, the population and with the result that you have you know, political parties in power for long periods of time in oil-producing countries. Mexico would be a good example. Mm. You know, they had, uh, you know, the PRI was, was ruled Mexico for 68 years, for heaven's sake. One party has ruled Alberta for 38 years. You know, and that's all a, a, a really a product of having access to, to oil revenue over long periods of time and then using that, that, that revenue to uh, irresponsibly and with very little fiscal accountability to, to, to grease the political machinery. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com And it's not so much corruption as it is, it is this is what happens when a nation becomes too dependent on one, um, re- on one resource that uh, I- increasingly begins to dominate 
the, the country's political thinking and, and economic thinking. In Alberta, per se, I mean, is there corruption? Yeah, there, there is corruption. I mean, we, we essentially have a dysfunctional government in Alberta because we have, unlike the Norwegians, we, we have not saved for the future. Mm. We are not getting our fair share. We are not managing our resource wealth in a responsible or transparent manner. And so we have this dysfunctional one-party state is increasingly becoming kind of the life, you know, the laughingstock of the rest of the country. They're looking at Alberta and say, what the hell's going on there? Why are you guys so wacky and so weird and so extreme? And, well, guys, it has everything to do with oil. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book, The Tar Sands, and one of the reasons I've done so much public speaking about the book is to encourage Canadians to start thinking about the pace and scale of this project, the money connected to this project, and how it's fundamentally changing our character as a nation. This show is syndicated right across the country through the university slash community networks from coast to coast to coast. You've got a, an audience that's primarily university students. What would you say to them? Well, I, the first thing I would say to all of them is get active politically and vote. Don't, uh, if you don't vote, you're letting business as usual continue, and that business as usual is over. It's over in energy terms. It's over in political terms. It's simply over. So recognize that, get engaged, and start beginning discussions about energy and energy use anywhere and, and everywhere you can. Think about some of the, I mean, we've got some great solutions here, but our political leaders are not putting them forward. So in other words, ordinary Canadians have to put them forward. So what's wrong then? with having a carbon tax. It's actually one of the most efficient ways to deal with a lot of these issues. Even a lot of oil companies support carbon taxes. Um, why don't we have a national carbon budget so that we sort of establish what our carbon emissions are right across the country and where it is the most economic and easiest to reduce those emissions. Let's tackle, set those targets and let's do it. And let's have uh, something like California's Air Resources Conservation Board be in charge of all that at a national level. Why don't we have an energy transformation fund that any province can apply to to re reduce their emissions? Um, why don't we have hard targets for renewables? You know, and, and with a national carbon budget, how, why is it we even started this damn project without a, you know, a carbon plan that for every kilogram of CO2 being produced in the tar sands, we're taking two off the table somewhere else? We need a game um, plan. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and we need a 30-year national plan for this resource. This is not an Alberta thing. The rest of the country has to really say, well, now wait a moment, Alberta. In the absence of not having any national vision, any strategic plan on energy, the country now has something what I call the Alberta Energy Plan. <laughs> What's the Alberta Energy Plan? Well, the Alberta Energy Plan is you have a petrodollar, you sink the manufacturing sectors of Ontario and Quebec. You sink the forestry sector. You give the country a black eye internationally because there's no action on climate change or carbon emissions because everyone's afraid about what it, that might do to the tar sands. Um, that's the Alberta Energy Plan, and it sucks, and it's not working, and it exposes the country to a whole bunch of political, economic, and environmental liabilities in the long term that are going to be extremely dangerous, and particularly to Alberta. So what we need is some national vision. And so mm -hmm. for young people need to get out and 
start advocating for a different way of doing things, a different way of thinking things, and maybe for once we really have to behave like a country and not like a bunch of separate regions. Very good point. Folks, the book Tar Sands, Dirty Oil and the Future of a Continent. The author, Andrew Nicky Fork. You can pick the book up at any chapters Indigo right across the country, and I urge you all to do it. It is the non-sexy side of the tar sands, and it's very profound. The research is very, very well done, and it's going to make your vision change, I think, a little bit on the tar sands and what we're doing in this country and not doing in this country. Easy way to get it, Show. Dot com. Click on the book cover. Andrew, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show this afternoon. It has been really revealing and very informative, I have to admit. Just one last question for you. What kind of car do you drive? Um, <laughs> good question. We, haven't, we, we don't have any hybrids or anything in the household. We have an old Toyota station wagon, and we have a used Audi station wagon. You have an and, Audi? Uh, mm. I, I yeah, an Audi. That's that, and because that's my wife drives that, and, and we've got three boys, and so she's doing all the uh, the, the school and soccer mm-hmm. stuff. But I, I walk to to work most days. Good for you. Good for you. Any final words, my friend? I'd love to have more more options and more freedom to use fewer and fewer fossil fuels. Absolutely. And um, there's lots of great work to be done there, and lots of young people have great ideas to to make that happen. So. Okay. I, I, I hope I, some of your listeners can, can do that. I'm sure you've motivated and inspired quite a few people to do that, to take action. And that's what this show is all about, is motivation and inspiration. Great. Well, thank you very much, Brent. Thank you so much. And you take care. We'll talk you again. Too. Bye now. Right. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank Andrew Nicky Fork for joining us this afternoon and sharing his perspectives about the tar sands, dirty oil, and the future of a continent is the book. Pick it up at Chapters Indigo right across the country or the www.brenthollandshow.com website. I sincerely enjoy the interview with Andrew because not only does the book give you time to pause and ponder, but it also offers extremely credible solutions to the problem. Let's hope the folks in Ottawa are listening as well. Next week, Pulitzer Prize nominee Tom Lipscomb joins us. Tom's got a new workout we'll be discussing called Last Man in Spandau, the mystery surrounding Rudolf Hess's flight, his subsequent murder, and suspected SAS involvement. Now, for those of you that are familiar with Tom, Tom, as you know, was the person that went down shortly after Che Guevara's murder in Bolivia and was able to bring back by bribing guards Che Guevara's personal diaries. Tom, as you know, is an outstanding publisher. He's been responsible for many Pulitzer Prize winners, Agatha Christie books, Jack Anderson's books, all kinds of publishing accomplishments, and has been on NBC's Today Show, the ABC Evening News, BBC Channel Ones, etc., etc., etc. Looking forward to speaking with him once again. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. See you next time.